Good evening. My name is uh, Richard. If we haven't met one of the ministers here, if you keep that uh, bit of Colossians in front of you, that will help uh, me, and I hope will be helpful for you as well as uh, we look at it together. Uh, Shall we pray as we come to God's Word? Our Father, those uh, words we've just sung, we want to be true uh, in all of our life, and certainly we want to be true now, that as I speak, as we listen to God's Word, please would it lead to glory to God the Father, glory to God the Son, glory to God the Spirit. Father, in our lives, in our listening to your word, we long to glorify you. We can't do it uh, apart from by your Spirit. So please would he be at work in us through his word, uh, growing us in Christ, growing Christ in us. Uh, In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. About 10 years ago, uh, I was working for a church in London, and uh, each year around September, we would head to various of the university freshers' fairs. So uh, if you've uh, been to one of them, they're slightly grim places as thousands of students arrive and work out, you know, what stores am I going to? Am I you know, going to join the rugby society? Am I going to join the chess society? Which way is my life going to go? And uh, I was working for a church, and uh, there was a room where these sort of external organizations could be. Not the student societies, but people could come in and sort of try and hawk their wares of various kinds. And uh, so you were sort of stuck in this room in a slightly undesirable location on campus. And you sort of free pens everywhere as people are desperate to get their brand out. Uh, four stores over from us, you've got someone uh, giving out Nando's vouchers, you know, sign up to my mailing list and have a free chicken. Um, a dead one. Uh, uh, and obviously. Uh, and so there we were, you know, representing the church and uh, trying to uh, connect with people just arrived in London, sort of working out what am I going to do with my life to join a church? Sure, I'll try that out. And uh, so there we were. And at this one particular fair, uh, getting to around lunchtime, we sent one of uh, my colleagues off to get some food uh, for us all because uh, it's pretty, you know, loads of students crammed in. You can't get anywhere quickly. So we thought send one person to get food for all. So he sort of shuffles off trying to push his way through. You know, excuse me, excuse me. As of half an hour later, manages to get some food and sort of shuffling back. And he uh, catches the eye of someone on one of the other stools. Uh, and they're there representing a, a different church. And they catch his eye and they say, you need to come to our church. And he says, sorry, I'm I'm not a student. I'm not here to sign. Oh, that's fine. That's fine. You need to come to our church. Okay. uh, Actually, I I work for a a different church over there. I'm a minister at that church. Oh. Oh. You really need to come to our church. (laughs) Slightly odd. So he politely declines, sort of busy on Sunday, and then has this awkward moment of shuffling off, and because it takes him a while to get away, sort of still eye contact with these people. And uh, came back and talked to us, it's a slightly, slightly odd thing. Uh, we're thinking this evening, really this question, uh, how do you make fully mature Christians? And for that particular church in London, the answer was obvious, you come to us. We can do it and no one else can. They were saying to my friend, my colleague, uh, there's, there's no other church in London that will give you what we can give you. To be fully mature, to properly know the Lord, to properly follow the Lord, you have to come to us. That was London 10 years ago. In Colossae, 2,000 years ago, the same thing was happening. Without the thousands of students crammed into a room, without the Nando's vouchers, but that idea of you have to come to us because you're lacking something, you're missing something. 
the church you're at doesn't have everything you need, doesn't have fullness, you better come to us. That was what was going on in Colossae. Next week, in the end of chapter 2, we'll meet some of these characters who are, who are coming into the church and saying, you need what we can give you. You need our rules. You need our worship. You need our experience. You need our stuff to be full, to be complete as a Christian. And Paul writes this letter to say, that's nonsense. You are, as we've called this series, you are complete in Christ. If you have him, you don't need anything more. Now, we don't want to be misunderstood at that point. At the church I worked for in London, by no means was, was perfect. Uh, in all kinds of ways, we needed still to grow. The same of this church here. Uh, Paul, our rector, is on sabbatical at the moment, precisely working through as a church, uh, how do we grow? How do we become more Christ-like? Uh, Paul, in the reading we had, will talk about being uh, fully mature in Christ, and that's, that's an aspiration. That's something we're working towards. We're not there yet. In the next verses that we didn't uh, quite get onto, Paul will talk about uh, growing in Christ, being strengthened in Christ. You, you can have more of him. You can grow in him. But his point in this letter is you don't need anything apart from him. More of him? Brilliant. Something else to top you up? No. No. If you have Jesus, you have all you need. And this whole letter really is written to make that point. And that includes these verses that we've just had read. It's just a sort of big picture. How does this passage fit together? Um, Paul contends, he says. Really, that's in verse 24 to 29. That's where we'll be focusing this evening, just those verses. And see, they start and end, verse 24. Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, what I'm suffering for you. Verse 29, to this end I strenuously contend Paul says, I I suffer, I contend, I strive, I work. Okay, that's what's going on in those verses. We'll come back to them in a moment. Uh, But chapter 2, verse 1, why is he telling us that? Well, I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those at Laodicea, for all who've not met me personally. Okay, he's telling us he works hard because he wants us to know that he works hard. That makes sense. Why does he want us to know that he works hard? And that's in verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4. I tell you this so that... Go on, Paul, why are you telling us it? I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. I tell you about my contending, my striving, my working hard, because I want you to not be deceived. Don't listen to those voices at a Freshers' Fair, at a church in Colossae, Churches in Manchester, perhaps, in our own heads, thinking, I'm lacking something. Paul says, I don't want you to be deceived by those voices. And if you look at how I've contended for you, that will help you to not be deceived. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by sound-sounding arguments, so that you're convinced that if you have Christ, you have everything. Big page, and that's what we're going. Uh, but Paul's contending, we're going to look at. I contend for you, I strive uh, for you. And uh, the passage slightly uh, jumps around. So I think the easiest way is we'll look at verses 25 to 28, and then we'll look at the outside bits, 24 and 29, uh, afterwards. That seems to me the easiest way. So firstly, Paul contends 
to fully present God's word. That's what he says in verse 25. So verse 24, he talks about his suffering. Paul, why are you suffering? Well, because, verse 25, I've become it, I've become the church's servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. I have a job given by God to present God's word in its fullness, to give you the full word of God. What is that word? Well, verse 26, it's the mystery that's been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. It's, it's been a secret for a long time, but now the Lord has made it known through Paul's preaching. Uh, to them, verse 27, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. It's glorious. It's rich. What is it? What is the full word of God? End of verse 28, which is Christ in you the hope of glory. Those seven words, Paul says, are the fullness of God's word, the word of God in all its fullness. Now, of course, the Bible is longer than seven words. Uh, and you, you, could, you could expand them, you could explain them, you could dwell on them, you could learn more about them. But fundamentally, Paul's saying, if Christ in you, the hope of glory, that's it. There's nothing more than that. There's nothing more than Christ. What does this mean? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, my friend's uh, dad had a car. He sort of bought a new car and had all these sort of amazing, magical features. Things have become much more common now. You know, sort of sat-nav built into the front panel. Ooh, look at that. Uh, but the thing that I found the most amazing, and to be honest, I haven't really seen catch on. Uh, I don't know why. Um, he had a, a car key that didn't even have a key on it. It was just like a fob that you have in your pocket. And it had some sort of radio jobby. And uh, whenever he approached the car the car would sort of recognize the thing in his pocket and the doors would just unlock. And if he sort of walked a little bit away again, they'd lock again. I, I don't know how it worked. Magic, probably. Uh, maybe that's why they don't exist anymore. They run out of magic. Uh, and so, you know, he could sort of walk up to the car and, and walk away. Uh, and his kids kind of enjoyed it, kind of hated it, because whenever he would drive them to the shops and go into shop and they were listening to the radio, when he got 10 feet away, the, the car would shut down and the radio was dead. Uh, so it was a bit annoying. But... What am I talking about? This car recognized the key. And so when, his name was Steve, when Steve approached the car, because a bit of the car was in his pocket, the door would open for him. It recognized the key that was in his pocket and opened up. Paul doesn't say you have a key in your pocket. Paul says you have Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know, you see those cartoons of uh, St. Peter at the pearly gates, and you know, sort of choosing who comes in, who doesn't. Uh, imagine that was true, and imagine uh, that one day St. Peter sort of flew down to you and handed you a key and said, this is the key to the pearly gates. Don't lose it. Uh, this is quite important. Don't lose it. And for the rest of your life, you walk around with that key in your pocket. That's going to give you some hope, some confidence, that one day you're going to approach the pearly gates, and you're going to get within 10 feet, and, and they're going to open up for you. Paul says you don't have a key in your pocket, you have Christ in you, the hope of glory. One day each of us will approach glory when we die, when Christ returns, and as we see it, 
we'll realize what maybe we know now, maybe we don't realize until that moment, how little we belong there. Just how glorious glory is to live with the glorious Father, Son, and Spirit for all eternity. We'll approach glory. And the Christian has Christ in them. Not a key in their pocket, Christ in them. The hope of glory. And so when they approach glory, the doors will spring open because Christ, of course, he belongs there. If Christ is in you, you belong there. The hope of glory. That is, says Paul, the word of God in its fullness. Now, of course, you could think more about glory. Our students at this church have just had a weekend away thinking about the Christian hope, thinking about the glory that awaits God's people. You can spend a weekend thinking about it. You could spend a year thinking about it, of course. But Paul's point is, if you have Christ, you have everything you need. You have the hope of glory. You could understand it better. You could enjoy it more. You could live more sort of sensibly in the light of it. But you don't need anything new. If you have Christ, you have everything. You have the hope of glory. There's nothing you're lacking. What's the implication of that? Verse 28, he is the one we've proclaimed. Well, of course. If he gives people the hope of glory, he's the one we proclaim. Admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. How do you get to be fully mature in Christ? How do you get to be a fully mature Christian? It's by Jesus. He is the word of God in its fullness. There's nothing else that you need. Any voice that tells you, you need Jesus and you need our little secret source of whatever kind. Paul says that's nonsense. Him we proclaim, and that will make people fully mature in him. Just notice uh, two things about this. Uh, Verse 28, how do we become fully mature? He's the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Uh, Admonishing and teaching. We'll each have a natural uh, bent. We'll prefer one of those to the other. Teaching, admonishing. Admonishing, kind of warning, rebuking, it's that sort of word. Uh, Some of us, you know, love teaching, love to to learn something new, to to get some information. Not so keen on someone calling us aside and saying, "Uh, sorry, I've noticed a pattern in your life. Not so keen, perhaps, on someone saying, in our small group the other week, you said, I'm not sure that is what the Bible says. Some of us might be the other way, you know, quite enjoy it. Come on, come on, hit me, hit me. Uh, whichever way you are wired, they come together. Do you see that? We proclaim him. What does proclaiming him look like? Admonishing and teaching. And so to be fully mature in Christ, we do need to be ready to be taught and admonished, uncomfortable as they may be in, uh, at times. And then for us to be a fully mature church in Christ, we need to be ready ourselves to teach and admonish. I don't know if you noticed as it was read, this verse, Paul goes from I to we. So all through this, uh, I rejoice, I became a servant. Um, uh, to make known uh, through my preaching, verse 29, to this end, I strenuously contend. Verse 28, he's the one we proclaim. 
there's a we suddenly. And in fact, if you go to chapter 3, verse 16, we'll get there in a couple of weeks. Uh, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. Those same words, teach and admonish one another. How do you get a fully mature church? It's as we're ready to, to call someone aside and have a potentially awkward conversation. Graciously, gently, lovingly, but perhaps awkward. It's as we're willing to teach one another. I, I've been reading a book. I've, I've been on this student weekend away and I, I've learned something. Who could I share that with? That they may know more of Christ, that they may be more fully mature in him. So it comes as we teach and admonish one another, as we're ready to be taught and admonished. But it comes through Jesus. He is God's word in its fullness. There's nothing more, nothing extra. And so Paul says, don't be deceived. If someone would come, or if the voices in your head are saying, there must be more than this. Surely I need more than Jesus to to be really successful, really spiritual, really mature. Don't be deceived. The word of God in its fullness is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul contends to fully present God's word. And then secondly, this odd phrase in verse 24, Paul contends to fill up Christ's afflictions. Verse 24, Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Uh, this phrase uh, in all the Colossians it gets people the most sort of twitchy. Uh, I fill up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. So haven't we just been saying that there's fullness in Christ? That he's all, isn't that the whole point of this letter? Yeah, that is the whole point of this letter, that there's fullness in Christ, there's nothing lacking in him. Uh, We read time and again in this letter, Christ has saved his people. His death, his sufferings, they are enough. It is done. He has forgiven, he's redeemed, he's restored, he's adopted his people, done. So what is lacking? What is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions? Well, it helps to think, what was Paul's job Paul's job, he says in verse 25, I've become a a servant with a a mission to present the word of God. His job was to travel around the place preaching God's word, and that meant suffering for him. As many of us will know, there are places, settings, people, where if we were to speak of Jesus, there'd be suffering. Maybe on a, a lesser scale than Paul, who, when he writes this letter, is in prison because the government really doesn't like what he's saying. But there are places where it will be difficult to speak of Jesus. And around the world today, of course, there are places where uh, people are killed, are imprisoned, have property taken, are separated from family because they'll speak of Jesus. Uh, That's what's lacking, is that there are people who haven't yet heard the word of God in all its fullness. The word is complete. There's nothing in it missing, but people haven't heard yet. Why does Paul use this phrase, I fill up in my flesh what's still lacking? It seems like a dangerous phrase to use in a, in a context where people are saying there's Christ isn't enough. Why would he talk about what's lacking? Why would he talk about filling up? I think it's because he wants them to see that when he suffers 
for preaching the gospel, there's a sense in which Christ is suffering that suffering. I am filling up Christ's afflictions. In one, Christ's suffering on the cross is finished, is effective for all time, but in one sense, Christ is still suffering through his people as they suffer in spreading the gospel. So I think that's a lesson that Paul learned the day he started following Jesus. If you're here uh, back in the autumn, we looked at uh, the book of Acts, and in Acts 9, uh, Paul, his name was Saul back then, uh, he had a, a change of a letter, uh, but he was uh, traveling around the world. He hated Jesus. He hated those who followed Jesus. He was traveling around the world, sort of rounding them up, gathering them up, dragging them back to Jerusalem in the hope they would be killed as he was involved in the execution of one uh, young Christian minister. And he's uh, traveling to this one city, Damascus, the Damascus Road sort of uh, experience comes from this, uh, that phrase. And uh, he's traveling to Damascus and he sees this blinding light. He sees the glory of the Lord. and He cries out, who are you, Lord? And the voice comes back, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Now you could read that and think, that's not quite right, is it? Paul isn't persecuting Jesus. He's persecuting Jesus' followers, Jesus' believers. But Jesus says, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. Paul, you're persecuting me. I've never seen it put better than a 16th century preacher who said, because, as it says here, verse 24, the sake of his body, which is the church, because the church is Jesus' body, if you step on, if you hurt the least, the, the, the least of all Christians, the least member of Jesus' body, that is Jesus' body that you're hurting. And so this preacher said, why does Jesus say, I'm Jesus who you are persecuting? Because when the toe on earth is stepped on, the head in heaven cries out. That's what happens, isn't it? You step on your toe, you stub your toe. It's not your toe that cries out, it's your head. When Jesus' toe, you and me, is stepped on, Jesus cries out, you're persecuting me. And so Paul, now as he's switched sides, as he is a member of Christ's body, as he is suffering, he can say, I'm filling up what's lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. As I suffer, mocking, beating, imprisonment, ultimately death for him, as I suffer, as Jesus' little toe is being stepped on, Jesus himself cries out. You want to say that there's, Christ isn't enough, that we're lacking something. Paul wants to say, we have so much in Christ, we have such fullness in Christ, we even have his sufferings, we share in them. And you might think, well, could I have a little bit less? Uh, could I have all the good bits of Jesus? That's not how it works. Paul says, you get such fullness of Jesus, you get all of him, even his sufferings. And Paul would say, what an honor is that to fill up what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. We get his sufferings. And with that, verse 29, we get his power. Verse 29, to this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Paul says, I work harder than is humanly possible because the energy that's at work is the energy Christ powerfully works in me. Where do you see the power of God at work in the world? You've all kinds of answers, but one of them this last week would have been on a bus at six o'clock. 
as I said, we had a, a student weekend away uh, this uh, weekend just gone. I've seen photos. It seemed like they had a, a happy time. Uh, but imagine some of those student leaders, uh, you know, sort of new in careers, uh, getting used to the jobs they're working, uh, some of them long hours, tiring jobs, here on a Thursday night, uh, leading Bible studies, teaching the students, getting home late, because that's how it works in the student world, and uh, waking up on Friday, a final day of work, a push through to what should be the weekend, but no, they're on a bus suddenly at six o'clock, traveling with these students. And some of them I'm sure thinking, what am I doing? How can I do this? for a full weekend, and then Monday straight back to work, and off we go again. Am I really going to have the energy to teach these students, to love them, to listen to them, to, to guide them, to pray for them? Am I going to have that? And Paul says, that's where, when I strenuously contend, I know the energy of Christ that so powerfully works in me. Each one of those leaders this weekend who had the energy to love a student, it might not look dramatic, Tim used a phrase a couple of weeks ago, remarkably ordinary. But that's where you see the power of God at work. When Paul suffers, he's filling up Christ's afflictions. He's sharing in Christ's sufferings. He's empowered by Christ's spirit. He's not lacking anything. He has all of Jesus. And he says, I want you to know how hard I'm working for you so you don't listen to those voices telling you I didn't give you everything. Don't listen to those voices telling you I held something back. I have suffered for you. I hope that in your lives you have known Christian ministers who have strived, who've contended, who've suffered, who've been afflicted for you. But you would know Christ. I think a couple of examples immediately come to mind. Uh, one uh, minister, when I was a student, uh, and he was uh, looking after students, uh, he literally busted gut. He, he, would, he loved the students that he was ministering to, those who were sort of drifting off. He would pursue and try to win back those who were doing well. He'd just pour time into that students could grow in Christ and, and be built up in him. Uh, the, the time he spent praying, the, the agonizing conversations he had, the pastoral difficulties, the emotion that went into that, and he kept going in late evenings and early mornings, and he started to get ill and just decided to push through it until the day his appendix blew up. There were two days he genuinely could have died in hospital. Now, I'm not commending that as a model. Neither would he. Uh, now, he's wised up. He's got married. Those two things might be related. Uh, but we knew he loved us. And if anyone had come and told us, do you know what, he's not giving you everything. He's holding something back. It's nonsense. That's nonsense. He's loved us. He's worked for us. I think of another uh, minister, a less dramatic example, I guess. A senior minister of a congregation. Uh, and in, in the church, the, the MTs, the ministry trainees, uh, were... Uh, one of their tasks was cleaning the toilets on a rotor, and it was, it was grumbling about it every week. Surely it's not my turn. It's not fair. Why am I doing this? And uh, one week they were just told, you don't need to do it anymore. And they didn't ask any questions. You know, what's going to happen? They're just, great, great. And uh, a couple of months later, one or two people find out that the, the senior minister's been cleaning the toilets. On a Thursday, 10 o'clock at night, uh, he was leading a group in the church building, sent them all home every Thursday, and then would scrub out the toilets. And you know, one or two people found this out and said, you know, this might not be the best pattern, the most sustainable. Let's find another way of doing it. I only found that story out years later. I didn't want anyone to know. 
But there's someone who strived, who worked to love a church. I hope you've known ministers. I hope you've seen people, not necessarily people who professionally work for churches, small group leaders, friends, parents. Maybe you haven't seen their striving. Later in this letter, Paul will talk about Epaphras, who agonizes in prayer for you. Maybe you haven't seen it. But if you have seen it, if you've seen someone who's worked for you, who've loved you, who's poured themselves into you, then when those voices come, am I lacking something? Am I missing something? Do I need to go over there? Paul would say, I I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Just think of those people who've strived for you, who've worked hard for you, and think, no, they would have given me everything I need. They've given me the word of God in its fullness. They've given me Christ in you, the hope of glory. I tell you this, chapter 2, verse 4, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I'm absent from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. I delight in you, says Paul. I delight in you. You are firm in Christ and I love it. And you're missing nothing. You can grow in him. You can be strengthened in him. You can know him better. You can enjoy him more, of course. Something more than him? No. No. Don't be deceived. Continue in Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for those who, in different ways, at different times, have... Uh, worked hard for us, who have suffered for us, who have served us, who have contended uh, for us, contended with us uh, at times as we needed to be uh, called back, who've taught us, who've admonished us. Uh, We thank you for them. Father, if we can't think of examples, uh, we thank you for Paul. Uh, We thank you for his work. He says here, for all who haven't met him personally, including us, thank you for his striving to understand Christ, to understand the scriptures for the things he wrote to serve us. There is no way that this man would have shortchanged us, would have given us less than we need. And so we thank you that we have in the scriptures the word of God in its fullness. And so, Father, please would you protect us from deceit. Protect us from those who would tell us that we're incomplete, that we're lacking. Uh, Please instead, would you grant that individually and as a congregation, we would continue in Christ, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as we were taught and overflowing with thankfulness to the honor and glory of Christ. Amen.